This is Think Retail, a podcast where top designers, strategists, thought leaders, and business people discuss what's coming next. Hi, I'm Melinda, and you're listening to Think Retail. The future is unfolding in real time all the time, but most retail brands are in a state of constant catch-up, just barely being at par before another innovation appears. This is partly a result of fast-moving times, but it's also the result of an industry that's been somewhat lackadaisical about innovation. To really become a brand of the future, today's guest sees audacious leadership as essential. Nancy Giordano is a strategic futurist, speaker, consultant, and author of Leadering, a book aimed at challenging leaders to be bolder in shaping the future, not only of their companies, but of the world. Hi, Nancy. How are you? Hi. So good to see you. Can you just start us off telling us by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I mean, I I really describe myself as a practicing strategist. I am here to, you know, build the solutions that we think that the future needs and wants from us. And uh, what I found in doing that is that it's not as straightforward as I'd like for it to be. I think that there's a lot of resistance about uh, what that uh, path is. And so I spend a lot of my time now, not just on the strategic side of it, but also on the education side of it or the inspiration side of it or bringing examples, trying to make this future that I see uh, more tangible for others so that we can build more quickly what it is I think we need. Maybe you could give us, uh, I always like to hear people's rant about why companies need to look further ahead than they currently do, because sometimes that kind of passion can get people excited. What's your rant? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think it's sort of clear, but the way I, the way I have been studying and framing this over so much time is the fact that there was a 20th century approach to things that worked really, really well for that era, right? It built big, huge brands and scaled them all over the world, and it lifted billions out of poverty, and you can look at all the really great things that happened during the industrial era, but also through tremendous breakdowns or externalities that we're just now really trying to even wrap our arms around. So it's environmental or ecological or certainly even physical or emotional or societal, like there's a whole bunch of problems that we chose not to pay attention to that are now coming due. And so then you start to look to the 21st century and say, okay, we're going to have more power at our fingertips. We have more technology. We have more opportunities to go and build really extraordinary things that are, again, are exponential and they can reach billions of people. Why would we want to bring a mindset that caused so much you know, damage, if you will, into the 21st century? I think we really desperately have to change the way that we approach what we do and how we do it to ensure a safe and thriving future that we can all look back on and be proud of right? And feel as though we, we did what we were supposed to do well. And there's a moment in time right now where we have a choice about which way we want that future to go. And so there's a little sense of urgency around that. So it's very easy to get the passion stirred. Yes. I really feel like it's important that we pay attention and that we're really, really privileged to be in the moment that we're in. It's an extraordinary moment of, of uh, possibility and responsibility. I love the positivity because a lot of the time thinking about the future can be intimidating. And I think leaders want to think about the future, but arguably with all of these things happening and happening quickly, it's a pretty challenging proposition. How do you make this overwhelming task feel achievable? Well, again, I think that when we started out this conversation about sort of what is my work right now, but I think that there was a way in which we approach things. And again, I go back to the 20th century, this idea of leadership as a noun. And it was very, it was an approach that was very intentionally designed to be static and closed and hierarchical so that we could root out all variability and not in any way, you know, put ourselves in any kind of risk. Incrementality was a big part of that. And uh, it was designed to have consistent growth and profitability, right? So we had long R&D cycles so we could have like short-term constant profitability and easy scalability was all designed for efficiency. Like those were Mm -hmm. all things that were sort of designed a certain way and to get people out of that mindset because that is actually the exact opposite of everything that we need now. 
Right. Right. We need to be much more dynamic. We need to be much more inclusive. We need to be much more diverse. We need to think about R and D and and, and R and D goes away. It's really about constant iteration, experimentation, and learning in order then to have a long-term sustainable value creation, right? We're really shifting, flipping that narrative or flipping that uh, approach. And so getting people out of that old mindset is really the hardest part. I think if we could get people to think differently, then we can get to start to build the things that we want to build. And then it doesn't become so scary. It's actually not at all scary in my world. It's full of possibility and full of extraordinary things, but it means that we build again, ecosystems of support. We incentivize curiosity and we do a lot of things differently than we did in this leadership area. So that's why I describe it as, an, as a verb, right? We should be moving from leadership, the noun to leadering the verb, which allows right. us to be able to sense and respond more effectively. Yeah, and I think when you, uh, I love what you're talking about with this idea of efficiencies, because I think efficiencies has been like this, it's almost like a mantra that people have lived by for so long. And yet innovation is by its very nature inefficient. And so it really does require you to think in a completely different way. What is, what's the consequences of not making this leap? Well, we're already seeing it. You know, there's a BCG study that came out at the beginning of 2020. It was thriving in the 2020s, which I always think, gosh, if they only knew it was right around the corner as they released this study. Um, but there are two key facts that I talk a lot about when I do my keynotes, one of which was the fact that, um, you know, you, you cease to exist. They had like one out of three public companies would cease to exist in its current form over the next five years. Like wow. Just hold that thought for a second, yeah. right? And the key factors in there were public company because public companies have so much more scrutiny and less ability to be able to, to navigate and to shift because the mandate is to transform. It's like in its current form, they would cease to exist. But if they're able to transform and able to think about and about how to uh, ensure their relevance and meet the needs that people have as we move forward, then they get to stick around. So that's number one, right? Do you want to still be here in five years? Yeah. Uh, and then the second is the profitability gap continues to expand between those in the top quartile and those at the bottom quartile. And so we're seeing again, uh, the biggest gap, I think it was in 30 or 40 years. So um, what we're seeing is front end of people saying, wow, there's something happening here and I want to go capitalize on that. And I understand these new technologies and how I can be, first it was an internet first company, or then it was a mobile social first company. Now it will be an AI first company, right? And the advantage of that versus those who continue to believe that this is a, you know, either a fad or at some point the killer app will be, you know, visible right. and then they can jump on that train. Um, what's interesting about the moment of time that we're in is that there's really a Peloton effect. Those who are the front end will move that much faster ahead yeah. and there's at the end. And so my work is really focused on trying to close that gap. So ensure that all are able to be part of this and that those who are at the front end running with such fast, you know, fervor are doing it responsibly, are really thinking about the decisions that we make to ensure that they again have uh, long-term viability, not just short-term uh, profitability. Right. So your book leadering is inspirational, but it also doesn't let leaders off the hook. If audacious leadership is the only way to get through this shift, what does that look like? Well, this goes back to, again, I, when I think a lot about what we have built in the past, we built a certain, it's about how we hold risk. And I would argue that many of the things that we thought kept us safe back in the day, back in the 20th century, are now the things that create vulnerability moving ahead. And part of that is how we think about risk or I would think about small change versus big change, right? We thought that incremental improvement was the thing that would keep us vital and relevant and around. And what we're actually seeing is it's big, huge leaps. It's like taking a big, bold step is actually what will protect us more. And the cost of not doing that is the thing that creates our demise. Again, in the book, I talk a lot about Nokia, right? And I remember being in the back of a car, heading to the airport, reading the paper version of the Wall Street Journal uh, that talked about the fact that Nokia had lost a billion dollars worth of shareholder value and had to lay off 10,000 people because they were afraid of moving more boldly mm -hmm. into 
uh, a more mobile future with a different kind of smart technology. And they knew all the same things that Apple did. They had all the same vendors come and talk to them about chip technology and screen technology. And so it wasn't that they didn't know is that they were too afraid to actually take the big leap and cannibalize current products and sales in order to build to the bigger future. So what we see are the companies that are able to cross what I call the liminal gap, the space between old systems breaking down and new systems yet to be created. There is this gap in between, and particularly in retail, we can map all the ones that didn't make it through that gap, right? And who are sitting sometimes in that that space in between right now, like Sears has been, or um, Raider Shack has been, or many others have been in that sort of place where they just sort of can't seem to be able to move to the other side. Uh, versus you see Walmart or you see others that have, um, at least for now, been able to figure out how to get through that gap and build the capacities and the processes that allow them to stay relevant as the future shifts and changes and the conditions change. Right. Um, you talked about things leaders have to think about. Can you give us the short Coles Notes version of that? Um, if we're talking about the same list, right, it's around uh, incentivizing curiosity. Curiosity is really like the number one thing. You talk to anyone who's building the future, any leader, that's what we want. But it's not so much only individual curiosity, which we should certainly also cultivate, but it's also inside our organizations. How do we incentivize constant learning mm-hmm. and, uh, and trying new things? And it's not just about taking a class or going to a conference, which are also important. I've had many leaders you know, say no to people who yeah. want to do, which makes me crazy. Uh, but it's also if I want to try something out in you know, any kind of process inside the organization and often be told no that this isn't the right time or that's a crazy idea or that will never work as opposed to building um, again capacity to try some of these things and figure out you know where the, um, the where the learning or the opportunity is and it's accepting that if it, that one didn't work to your point before about it's a little messier when you experiment mm-hmm. um, not seeing that as failure or wasted resources or something that you know took the company down but instead was something now that we can build more with I've been interviewing a lot of people both before the book and after the book around this concept. And again, universally will say this idea that you need to have senior management that really believes in the fact that we've got room to experiment and to learn. And so yeah. I think that becomes a really key one. So that was the one, sorry, that was a long okay. one. Curiosity. Uh, curiosity <laughs> becomes, but I, I really do think that it all sort of centers there. And then um, about thinking about partnerships, right? Building outside of uh, ecosystems of support, both inside organizations, Sometimes we get really, really siloed, which we, again, was a tactic designed to keep us safe back in the day that no longer yeah. works now moving forward, um, but also outside of organizations that we start to build uh, different kinds of partnerships that are around learning, uh, they're around building, they're around investing together. Uh, so there are different ways in which we do a lot. So learning to be more uh, dependent upon one another. And some of those partnerships can look very surprising, really uncommon partnerships. And often they can also be with our, what historically we would describe as competitors. Right. So I think a lot about that we can be like a retail competitor, but an innovation collaborator and how we think about that again differently. And there's many yeah. more examples that continue to grow around that. One is really about thinking about taking responsibility and thinking a lot more about um, uh, contribution versus just extraction, right? Again, we've built these business models about how can I hold everything and keep it just for me and whether that was resources or attention or time. And what we're recognizing now is that how do we flip that in a way so that we can make sure that we are actually building things that people really need and want and contributing and creating value with every, every decision that we make. So there's a whole other thing about how the, the role of business will shift in a uh, changing society. I'm trying to remember what, what else is on my list. Those are the ones that I, I am always so passionate about. Those are the three biggies, right? Yeah. Yeah. And those are, I, I, I see that all the time as well, working with retail brands in that, yes, they're siloed. Yes. There's a, a lack of curiosity within the culture of the organization where there may be individuals who are very passionate and very excited about something 
but the structure and the system that they are working in doesn't enable that and in fact can inhibit it. You know, you've got all these processes of approval. And I think sometimes, especially when you look at small local companies that are suddenly having such success, if I look at a category like food service, you know, they can, they can have a new menu item on the menu in a day. They don't need to wait for this complicated approval process to which can take years in a you know a large organization and so of course they're leaping and bounding ahead of all of these big chains because they're nimble and they can quickly say oh that didn't work throw that in the garbage try something else right and again i mean so tough some again so compassion actually is on my list too i've been talking a lot about that because i think it's also understanding that um, again, those smaller ones are you know, able to sense and respond very, very effectively in that way, but they have less complex supply chains because they're not yeah. serving as many people. They have less regulatory overview when you talk about certain other kinds of industries where the biggest players have a lot of um, regulatory or you know, sort of uh, governance uh, oversight around that. And so the question is, how do we become uh, ensure that those, those processes, again, were designed to keep us safe? Um, are actually keeping up with the pace of it. We can talk about that in law. We can talk about that in medicine. We can talk about that in finance. We can talk about that almost everywhere. There are yeah. these like you know structures that were designed to kind of make sure everything was done safely. That we have to figure out: uh, are they still really serving us well or not? Yeah. So I do. You know, I hear a lot from the big incumbent organizations of frustration when they see the small, nimble ones able to skirt some of the rules that they don't feel as though they have the same permission to be able to go do. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that there's definitely, there's there's factors when you're trying to deliver something at a certain capacity where, you know, simply the amount of people that you're serving is going to slow you down. But I think that within organizations, there's much more room for them to be more flexible than they realize. 100%. And a lot of the time it is um, getting people on board and singing from the same song sheet where you're, you know, all in one voice as opposed to you've got some people who are really addicted to this way of, because it's all they know and especially if it, if you've been doing it for 40 years um well, and it's I think be harder when we talk about retail right there's also the sense of being like right in the moment but the reality is there is this longer term view that we need to take and the sense of to your point what, what gets us all on the same song sheet is a sense of shared purpose and shared mission and hopefully a shared outlook over a course of time so you and i've had this conversation around like yeah. what kind of time you know horizon makes the most sense and the example i gave why is that you know rather than looking at a quarterly return or even an annual plan ikea thinks about 400 years into the future yeah. And uh, yeah, so I was thinking about that. I, I was actually just on their website earlier this morning, looking at their financial performance for 2020 and they rocked it. You know, they did an extraordinary job of pivoting in a moment. So you can have a company of tremendous scale, have a billion customers and still figure out, and their stores, apparently 75% of their stores were closed for at least seven weeks, if not more during the yeah. pandemic. And they still were able to achieve 96% of the sales that they had the year prior. That's amazing. And, but a big shift to that was that they went online right? They had to figure out that whole online source. So their e-commerce went from 10% to 16% in a year, a company with that much scale. And, and you can think what they sell, right? They're not just selling spatulas, right? They're selling couches and chairs yeah. and really big, heavy things. Um, and interestingly, they found that the uh, assortment of the way that people shopped was really different, that people didn't just come and like browse now stores. They came and they were really pointed with what they wanted. They did less impulse shopping. They bought less small stuff. They bought more big stuff. Like they were just able to respond and see that information and, and, and gear toward it. So I do think that's why you need to have an organization that's really focused on the bigger goal, understands their, their contribution to it individually and as a team um, to be able to get to that, to be able to pivot that quickly to what mm-hmm. it is that they were able to do. Right. That is the value of that kind of thinking. 
I, I can hear the naysayers in the in my mind over here saying 400 years, that's crazy. You know, we can't even plan for five years. Talk to me a little bit more about that aspect of IKEA's approach, about that 400 year plan and, and why that's so important and why it isn't unrealistic. Well, because I think, again, I go back to, I think the question is, how, how is it paying off? And it's paying off that they're a very, very successful company that's grown to have that much. I mean, they, they it was like 39 billion euros in sales, I think, last year. So it's not like it isn't working for them to think that way, right? They're yeah. able still to deliver in real time what it is that they need to deliver. And that's why I was giving that example that they were able to pivot so quickly in this past year and still achieve so many of the goals that they need to achieve, even with that sort of long-term view. It doesn't get in the way. What I think it does is it orients people toward the bigger goal. And it helps them also make investments that make people feel really good about working for that company and really putting all in. So they do a lot of work in sustainability. They do a lot of work in trying to like, again, um, address the gaps of affordability so that everyone can have a high quality lifestyle, but not do it in a way that's so disposable. So yeah. when you start to see them make investments that are about long-term viability for both the planet and for people, I think that's part of what gives you then inspiration to go and like put the longer hour in. Yeah. Given day, or to talk to your colleague because you know you have a sense of shared values in which it is that you're bringing you know your best to the work so i do think it becomes less transactional and more motivating to go do that work which then puts you in a place where you can take more risk absolutely and as we're seeing i know you're having the same issue in the u.s as we're having here is there's a labor shortage that is looming and that companies like this that have that you know, giving you a real reason to show up to work that you believe in is going to be so essential going forward. You're going to be able to attract top talent. You're going to be able to keep them there. They're going to deliver a better experience when you're in the store. Yes, you know. and all of that, right? Yeah. And I think there's two components to it. One is, do I think that, again, my values are aligned? And we saw a bit of pushback with people at Amazon where they felt like the company didn't think about sustainability or didn't think about worker well-being and welfare as much as they should have. So there's definitely much more of a, uh, an awareness of that and a, you know, an outcry against that. So I think that's one, right? Is you want to make sure you're attracting the really great people, but they also feel as though they're, they're putting their energy into something that they feel good about. Mm -hmm. But then there's also the social contract back of, you know, when we start getting into more technology that will replace some of the workers that we currently have, how will that be handled? Yeah. And how do we do that in a way, again, it is compassionate and thoughtful. Unilever is a great example of thinking a lot about the future of working and how that will impact the organization as their manufacturing changes quite dramatically over the next few years and their delivery changes um, and involving talent in those conversations as opposed to imagining something just happens to people. They're actually yeah. involving and, and building and also a very sensitive, there's a great white paper around it um, that was written by some folks at Harvard that talks about the sensitivity between how they would do it in China versus how they do it in Brazil versus how they do it in the U.S. because there are different uh, economic conditions that exist in each of those markets very differently and different kind of social mores around it. And so the thought that they can be that thoughtful about it. So I think that what we need to be, this goes back to why I think further than a quarter ahead, this will happen over the next five to 10 years, if not sooner. And yeah. we need to start thinking about that and preparing for that in much more effective ways than what we are currently doing. Otherwise we're going to be stopped very short-sighted. And again, the talent who doesn't think that you've got my best interest are never going to come and join you because they're afraid yeah. you're going to just dump them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this re leads into the next thing I was wanting to sort of go back to you talking about compassion and human focused approach. When companies are, especially right now, coming, we're still sort of in the pandemic towards the end of it, hopefully, but it's still going on. We're still trying to just adjust to e-commerce and supply chains, asking leaders to be human centered and compassionate. Sometimes I, I feel like they're, everyone's just so tired and so exhausted with everything that's go gone on. On top of that, asking them to take that step, 
talk to me about why it's possible and why it's so important. I don't know that there's any other way through, to be quite honest. Like, I think every, for every reason you just mentioned is exactly why we need to think about this. So there's like, again, the immediate, like, how do we ensure that we um, don't push people so hard or that we can, uh, we're sensitive to burnout, we're sensitive to fatigue, we're sensitive to the, um, again, the complexities of people's real lives, because I think we got to see them all a lot more this uh-huh. past year and recognize that there are um, many responsibilities that people are juggling and how do we um, help hold that better and build systems and, and um policies that actually address that much better, particularly for, for families and for women in particular, as we saw a very big gap happening there. So I think part of it is that, um, so we just end up getting the work done because you can, if you have no talent, everyone's burnt out, or everyone's decided to give up, then you're not going to go very far. But I think also it's just a bigger picture, which is that we can build again with more courage if we're building with more perspective on how we're taking care of each other and the world, right? The, the, the idea of sustainability is no longer like a, you know, a segment of the population that cares yeah. about that. It is literally everyone cares about that. And certainly if you look at anybody under 25, it is the existential threat of their lifetime. And they want to know that we're making uh, responsible choices and stewarding our resources well toward that. And so I do think that um, having compassion for that fear, right? And yeah. having compassion for each other in the moment, while we're trying to learn. I mean, you think about learning and leading simultaneously, it's a really hard thing. And it's not something that any of us were necessarily groomed to do. That wasn't the way our school systems work. That wasn't often the way our families work or society works. And so we're asking everyone to rethink how we show up in a place of confidence and care at the same time that we're trying to take on all these responsibilities. And so I think the only way to get through that is to have compassion for yourself, compassion for your teammates, compassion for your customers. You know, I just had a a retail experience, an online retail experience. I went really, really poorly and I'd called really frustrated, but partly I was frustrated because we also had all this issue with, you know, other things that were going on in our like world today. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we transfer you know, this overwhelming sense of life into the experience that we're having with a, you know, a retail person and, and the fact that they can just hold that for us and just realize that we're all kind of going through it and just be kinder to each other as we go through it. So I do think anyway, there's everything from a policy piece to just a frontline piece where I think that we need to bring a, a more human-centered, more heart-centered, um, again, more compassionate, empathetic perspective. There's no other way through it. This, yeah. this is not a transactional experience that we're going through that we can just like kind of tough it out and you know just get more efficient at doing and i think that if you do it well then you will have more loyal consumers 100 yeah i mean easily and, and, and it shows through my children have actually become quite savvy at being able to go into any kind of environment go that person really loves their job that person doesn't love their job yeah. and they can see it at any like in you know, any frontline person that they interact with the person who really is engaged and the person who feels well held like feels as though the organization is taking good care of them and so they're bringing their best work to that organization it is a total symbiotic experience and so you know i get to the privilege of talking to I would say hundreds, but dozens and dozens of companies every year. Right? I do at least 30 keynote, if not 40 keynote talks. And every one of those people are briefing me on what's going on inside their organization. And then people come up to me after those talks and tell me what's really happening for their industry. And so you hear the same things over and over again. And uh, so I think that the only way to build bravely and to build audaciously, to get back to what we talked about at the beginning, is to think about doing it in service of, of each other. Yeah. And I think there's also, um, you know, you touched on it with kids under 25 feeling an existential threat of climate change. I think there is a lot of pessimism and fear about the future. And I, you know, you think about a series like Black Mirror, it's the perfect example of everyone's worst nightmare of how all of these new technologies and climate change, how it could all play out. And it's a lot to grapple with. Yet you are very optimistic and excited about the future. So what is it that you're so excited about? 
You know, I just gave a TEDx talk specifically to college students around this topic to say, first of all, pay attention to where that narrative is coming from. It's coming from people who are incentivized to scare us. So it's the news industry or the social media industry or the politics you know, industry. They're all incentivized to make us really feel scared so that we make a choice that sort of uh, behooves them, as well as incumbent organizations, incumbent industries that want to scare us about whatever the new thing is, whether it's renewable energy, whether it's a 5G cell tower, whether it's, you know, plant-based proteins, whatever, if it's electric cars, mm-hmm. um, there's many innovations that are coming in and incumbents want to scare us away from that. So one of the things I think that we need to do is pay more attention to what is really the story. Is that really the story? And so I'm going to argue, A, there's a lot more positivity that isn't told than negativity, which is continuously echo chambered. Yeah. Um, and then the second is to recognize we're in the moment where we get to decide that. There is this really critical moment in time right now. We get to decide what we want the future to look like. It will transform. And we're moving out of an industrial era into what I describe as a productivity era. There'll be a lot of new questions that come up with that, a lot of new opportunities that come with that, a new way of thinking about how we distribute, not just create productivity, but also distribute productivity. And we get to decide that right now. This is our time. Like, I just think it's such an extraordinary privilege to be in this moment in time and be gifted with this amount of um, impact. Uh, you know, we're going to rethink and reshape and redesign every single industry and yeah. even and, and societal construct to be quite honest as well. So being prepared for that, being excited about that, thinking about the possibility of that, not just the demise, things will break down. We're going to destroy, you know, there will be value destruction in certain arenas that have not been able to keep up. And there will be a tremendous amount of value creation for the people who are, can see the opportunity. I just want us to make sure that we do it in a way that holds people well. This goes back to why you need to put people at the center. Mm-hmm. instead of just a short-term profit motive at the center. Because if we can do that, then we are actually going to build this future that we really want. And then again, I want kids to realize that they have uh, a real role in shaping a building, right? The future's not happening out there. It is us. We yeah. are it. And this yeah. is our time. Oh, that's exciting. It. I love I that. Know, right? <laughs> it is really exciting. Uh, and, and you see a lot of other futures that are also starting to like go into the same thing. So I'm not the only one who's talking about this. And so you're going to hear more and more, uh, hopefully around the good story and around the potential that exists and around the, uh, the, again, this huge invitation that we have right in front of us right now uh, that I yeah. really hope that we can shift our mind to embrace. If you could give leaders three action items, sort of three big areas that they could attack to put this into motion and start the journey to becoming a, a, a better, not just a better company, but to help us build a better world, what would those three things be? You know, it's funny because I probably would take an attack out because I do think that we're partly moving away also from this sort of like war narrative or this competitive narrative or this like winning at all cost narrative. Like if I win, like, you know, that you don't. Um, I talk a lot about moving from winning to caring. Mm-hmm. And the fact that, again, the companies that do that, Costco can be, again, at the top of the list of a company that's seen as somebody who actually cares a lot about people. I'm not sure much about their planetary thing, um, but as a result, then uh, have greater profitability. So I would argue really putting, you know, caring at the top of our agenda and realizing that that is actually the business mandate moving mm-hmm. forward, as opposed to an, a nice to have for just a few of those, you know, uh, kinds of companies over there. Um, I'll go back to, again, to curiosity. I really do think that that is a really, really critical part to this. Um, and I think it's about building capacity to sense and respond. We want to be able to stay relevant. So these things that we're doing are not because they're scary and they're not because they're risky. They're because they allow us to continue to sense and respond in real time to the way in which we can continue to serve people. People are still going to have needs for things, right? But how they feel about those needs and how they serve those needs are going to continue to shift into change. And so to make sure that we don't just keep going back to it worked in the past. So let's continue moving this way in the future. There's a Again, radical, radical shift happening in all of this. So to be more aware of it 
um, and to be excited about it as opposed to scared of it. And again, there's a million small little things you can do. There's a bunch of micro actions, there are policy things, and then there are big, huge ways we could do it. So I think to just be a lot more open to the fact that there's a better way of doing it in order to build a better next. If people want to connect with you or find your book, where could they go? Uh, LinkedIn is really the most consistent place. We just talked about social media and I have my own relationship <laughs> with it, which is like, I, you know, spend a little bit of time in Instagram, but for the most part, really don't. Um, but LinkedIn is a brand I trust and a community that I love being a part of. So that's the easiest way to get to me directly. Um, and then my book is available on all the places you would buy books. Um, and actually, we'll, and we're going to create our own social commerce, our own uh, e-commerce platform in fall in which we'll be able to sell bulk orders much more effectively because let me tell you book distribution really broken um, <laughs> and we're out to fix it so by fall we will have a solution where in any form you want to buy it and whatever quantity you want to buy it we're going to be able to solve that problem anywhere in the world that you want to buy it because those are all the breakdowns right now that exist and that's what you're going to see is a spirit of innovation when we see a breakdown it's an opportunity to go fix it right if we see something we're frustrated by we can build a solution if there's something we're frightened by we can go in and intervene and blunt it so that's really i think maybe the thing i would add to that list that you just asked me about is agency have agency to go do it right yeah. create the thing you think is missing fix the thing that thing needs to be broken solve the problem that you're frustrated by this is the, the opportunity right now great i will also link to your linkedin in the podcast description so people have an easy way to get to you thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with us thank you so much it's been fun we have the opportunity to rethink the way we approach business strategy and the future of entire industries, the planet, and our well-being as humans depends on it. Before those companies who are already charging audaciously into the future get so far ahead you can't catch up, it's time to be bold. Nancy's book, Leadering, offers a deeper dive into the conversation we had today and provides both inspiration and strategies to become bolder leaders. We'll link to it in our podcast transcript if you want to take that dive. Thanks for listening to Think Retail. For more information about Think Retail, you can reach us at info at sld.com. For more episodes, visit us online at sld.com slash podcast. Next time, we discuss how to create an inclusive brand strategy. We hope you'll join us.